Thanks for tuning to Digital Voices Podcast, where we chat digital transformation, challenges and opportunities across healthcare and life sciences. And now, your host, Ed Marks. Today on Digital Voices, we're going to tackle digitally oriented physician leaders. Did you ever wonder why some physicians are super digital and others aren't? So I think it's a fair topic. Plus, not we're not like like just picking on physicians by any stretch. It's like that whether you're talking about any sort of executive or leader. Is like why are some people digital and why are some people aren't? So we're going to explore that a little bit, but definitely from the physician perspective. And we have a, a an amazing car, uh, cardiovascular cardiothoracic surgeon with us. And it just reminded me, uh, Sydney, about the time that I took my youngest daughter to observe surgeries. Have you ever observed a surgery of any sort or a heart surgery? I have never observed a surgery before, but the majority of the people in my life that I surround myself with are actually pre-med track. And so they have a bunch of experiences where they have observed surgery. And when they tell me the stories, all I can think about is how I would probably pass out. So Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting you say that, but, but my first time, you know, I worked as a combat medic in the Army, as everyone knows, and then that translated to civilian world. I worked as an anesthesia tech, and my very first case was a full-body harvest. So that was uh, sort of mind-blowing. It's like, oh, my gosh, you know, because I'd never seen anything like that before. And it was just uh, the ability of clinicians to and family to do something great out of a tragic situation. But it reminded me of my youngest daughter, uh, Shalini. So this happened recently, and it was with cardiothoracic surgeons. So Kevin will will appreciate this. So we, I was always asking my daughter, you know, she was 16, 17, like, what do you want to do when you grow up? Those type of questions. And she never really had anything that she was particularly passionate about to say, oh, I want to do X, Y, or Z. Then one day, out of the blue, she's like, Dad, I, I want to become a, a heart surgeon. I'm like, wow. Now, of course, you know, I work in in healthcare and her mom is a NICU nurse and getting her doctorate. And so it was kind of natural that she had an inclination towards the clinical. So I said, this is great. I'm going to set you up at the Cleveland Clinic and you're going to, you know, observe this these amazing operations with, you know, the leaders of cardiovascular surgery at the Cleveland Clinic. So she came and she got all prepped and everything like that. And about an hour later, I get this phone call from, from the main doctor. He's like, Ed, Ed, we really love Shalini a lot. She's a, a great young lady, uh, but she just passed out. <laughs> they had to, you know, go take care of some people from the OR had to go take care of her. And, and then she decided after that, that uh, maybe that wasn't the best career choice for her. Although, and sure, Kevin would, would have an opinion about that too. I'm sure that's a very common thing for individuals when they first get into medicine and see surgeries, you know, so it's, it's not a reason not to get into it, but for her, it was pretty traumatic. And so she had that experience, but anyways, I'm thrilled that Kevin is with us today. So Kevin is an amazing uh, clinician. I'm sure many of you know about him, a clinician and a leader. So Dr. Lobdell is both a doctor. He is a colonel in the army. He's a cardiothoracic surgeon. He's a board member of some companies and he's the chairperson of Perfect Care, which we're going to hit on a little bit. 
And so, Kevin, I just wanted to welcome you to Digital Voices. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Great introduction and great discussion. And quite frankly, my uh, journey in this field mirrors much of what you described. I can still remember my first surgical rotation and uh, an open abdomen that was being unpacked and then packed. And it was quite graphic. And I simply put sweat through, you know, my white Oxford <laughs> shirt and kind of wondered, am I ever going to be able to do this? And then the next uh, most gratifying moment and one that I'll always remember was as I was an intern um, on the cardiac surgery service and we were doing a transplant. And that would have been 1986. So when they actually told me to get the patient ready, I thought maybe they were just goofing around with me. But we were actually doing it, and a couple hours later, there we were with the patient on bypass with an empty mediastinum, meaning the heart wasn't there. And I just thought, this is the coolest yeah. thing I've ever done. Yeah. No, that's that's amazing. And we're very thankful to you and, and others like you who have taken this career as a service and helping so many people get their life back, saving their lives and, and increasing the quality of their life. So thank you for that. So. Let's jump into the most important question of all today uh, for this uh, podcast is your favorite music. So what kind of music do you like to listen to? And I'm going to throw a twist on this too. Do you listen to music when you're doing surgery? Good questions. I love music, the whole range from classical to rock and roll. Like when I grew up in the 60s and 70s, I probably still have a bias for that sort of music, um, folk southern rock jazz pretty much you name it that said i'm probably not much of a you know popular music fan or rap that sort of thing but uh definitely classical uh classical rock and, and jazz and yeah and yeah in the operating room definitely uh perfect operation for me would be you have to say very little there's beautiful music going on in the background and you know, everybody walks out with a smile on their face knowing they did a great yeah. job. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. And and Kevin, can you share with us, you know, do you have like a life uh, purpose statement or a mantra or just kind of words that you live by so we get to know you a little bit uh, more deeply? Again, uh, probing and terrific question. And fortunately, because of some recent events, I've been able to crystallize that. So what I would say is strategically doing difficult things and serving others would be the imperatives. And the tactics would really be learning faster and continuously improving. Yeah, no, that's great. So tell us your story, because as I mentioned in the introduction, you know, you're sort of a renaissance uh, type of individual having all these uh, different abilities and experiences. So tell us to the extent that you how deep you want to go. But, you know, just growing up, did you think about being an uh, officer in the army? Did you think about medicine? And then how did you, you know, and then take us to real to current times in terms of what you're doing today and and just how you got there? Yeah, probably the best way to answer that would be something that um, my sister related that sort of gives a visual of what you asked about, and that is thinking and acting and so forth. And she said, be careful when Kevin gets off the porch. And what that I think meant is she had this vision of me 
sitting and thinking a bit, but once I decided what I was going to do, I was fairly deliberate. I would say I was creative, entrepreneurial, very much interested in sports as a kid. And as I've reflected on it, certainly more interested in facts than, say, fantasy. Um, but what I think I evolved to was kind of like you'd read in the Marine War Fighting Manual and something that was probably reinforced by my dad, who's a veteran of World War II and Korea, when he would admonish us to think, 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 and then he would also say, remember, indecision is a decision and it usually results in a bad outcome. So I think that you could look at um, the sort of characteristics that are emblematic of the way I approach the world, and that is two-thirds of the facts, two-thirds sure I'm right, and I'm going to act. It's probably much more of a surgical mentality. And I think it served me well in, in that area. I think it served well as a leader and kind of builds on one's character and their courage. Um, but I also know that when it comes to teamwork, I have to contemplate uh, who are the proper teammates that will complement me and be the ones that want to read every last detail and think of every last potential risk to what we're uh doing um does that does that answer your question yeah no that's 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 really good and so how did you so you you joined the military and i i'm presuming but uh, interested to know was that a result that's where medicine and the military came together or were you in the military first and then medicine came so me medicine first uh just to rewind that and i i recently told this story down at fort benning um, when they asked me to talk about why I serve. And um, I said it always starts with family. Uh, I mentioned my father who fought the Battle of the Bulge. For those mm. that don't know, it's been the largest battle that we've ever fought as a nation. A million people, 600,000 of those uh, GIs were, um, you know, combatants. We had 100,000 killed in action or wounded. Um, and it was representative of one of eight GIs that were in uniform at that time. I had another uncle that was killed in action, and then I had an uncle that was a Marine uh, in Iwo Jima as a flamethrower that is in, we would say in modern terms, suffered from wounds that we couldn't mm -hmm. see. Um, so there's sort of that familial background and then others in addition, but those are the most noteworthy. Grow up in the 60s, 70s, and you probably remember Walter Cronkite on the news and giving sort of the updates on the Vietnam War. That would be in the backdrop every night during yeah. dinner, and that would be a part of discussion. And the same thing with my dad. I can remember, quite frankly, um, you know, his top drawer, like the change drawer where the keys are. And in there were um, these black and white pictures with serrated edges, and they were um, mass graves from the concentration camps that he helped to liberate. Well, you can't help but wonder what that's about and we touch on it. But then as I got closer to high school, I had seriously thought about academy, but quite frankly, I don't think I was mature enough or certain enough that that's what I wanted to do. Ultimately, I decided medicine. I liked math and science. I ultimately realized probably more science than math, more biologic science than some of the other sciences, um, and that ultimately led to medicine. In the background, there's always military, 
Um, you probably remember 1975, USSR invades Afghanistan. I had to sign up for selective mm-hmm. service. I thought, well, here mm-hmm. we go. It didn't happen as I was in my surgery residency. Uh, I think it was 1990. There was the uh, invasion of Kuwait and the Gulf War. And I, again, I thought that was one where we were going to be mobilized. That is some uh, volunteers when I was at the University of Minnesota. And again, that sort of passed. I did my chief's talk, which was a big keynote talk each year of the graduating chief residents on war surgery. So this theme persisted, but what you'll get to is one year turned into 10, 10 turned into 30. And it was a couple of years ago. I thought if I don't do this now, it's never going to happen. I visited one of the recruiters at one of our national meetings. I got involved. It ultimately took about a year and a half to go from I'm interested till I got my age waiver and um, commissioned. Uh, that was a wonderful thing. August 13th, 2020, Stan McChrystal did my commissioning. I got my orders about three months later. Now COVID's hit, so our virtual uh, world has supported our battle assemblies. I've in the process gone to Fort Sill for direct commissioning, um, completed the first phase of basic officer leadership online, and then the second will be at Fort Sam Houston uh, coming up here shortly. Now that that's super, especially doing that a little bit in a non-traditional fashion, as you mentioned. But yeah, thank you for your service. And I know you'll be a great ad uh, for our country in, the, in, in your role. So you clearly have embraced digital and the different things that you do. So tell us a little bit about becoming the chair of this chairperson of this company, executive director of this company. Tell us a little bit about the company. And then, and then I'm probably going to come back and really talk about leadership aspect of, of digital. But yeah, first we'll set it up by you sharing a bit about your role in this company. Yeah, and let me just clarify too, let's call it an initiative as opposed to a, a company because it was a grant funded effort. And, um, you know, we've had great support from the Duke Endowment to do this work to help transform care, transform care in the Carolinas. Um, but again, I think the macro view would be that it fits my sensibilities. I'm always thinking about how do we close the gap between the way it is and the way it should be. So probably somewhere around 2010, um, I realized there was some real opportunity to insert technology to transform the way we were delivering care. It started out with things like um, the use of telepresence for rounding, uh, for visiting patients' bedside when um, we needed that elastic capacity. That evolved into, you know, a more formal EICU for our system. And as I continued to think about these things, you know, I thought that there was enormous opportunity for a peri-procedural home that would use uh, audiovisual remote monitoring and Internet of Things in the way of biometrics to build data as a platform and so forth that would allow us, quite frankly, to learn faster and improve the care that we were delivering, simultaneously filling those gaps. And I tell the story, which is worth uh, noting, of John Fox, our former coach at the Panthers, who went on to Denver, and he was back in town, ended up um, having a problem one morning playing golf. They called me, 
um, because I had just finished ahead of him and John's a good friend and this is all okay because it's public knowledge. But um, I went over, John was suffering from aortic stenosis and this was one of those, you know, uh, near death events. We got him into the hospital, we worked him up um, and he had an operation four days later in his home and everything went beautifully. But he wasn't allowed to go back to the sidelines as you would imagine for about a month. And so what I did was visit John and his wife, Robin, each day. And you came to realize that these are sophisticated, intelligent, well-resourced people. But the system that we have of go home and, you know, we'll see in a couple of weeks was fraught with uh, sort of gaps. And it was with that that I solidified sort of my view from the patient's perspective of how we could do a lot better with existing tools. An example would be, and, and you'll understand this, rounding one time and a patient said, oh, great, we haven't seen a doctor, you know, for a couple of days. And I thought, how in today's yeah. world could this go on? Like, at the time, our girls were little and they would call me on FaceTime, <laughs> right, because it was novel. And I thought, why can't we just do that, you know, with our patients? So ultimately, that led to this more comprehensive vision of a periprocedural home where it's enabled with technology, can integrate information, it can be used for us to um, use it to make sense of things and then improve the way you deliver care. So about three and a half years ago, the Duke Endowment bought into this vision. They granted me $1.1 million and uh, the time to do the work. And here we are now with about 575 patients. And I think the most remarkable things that you would appreciate would be a 20% reduction in the length of stay after cardiac surgery. We've reduced readmissions compared to benchmark by 50% or more. So they're down in the four and a half to say 4.8% range with benchmarks ranging 10.1 to 12.1 and even higher depending on the acuity of the case. And then we're finding that the financial impact, if you look at what it costs to be in the hospital for a day or a readmission, is somewhere in the range of 17 to 25% of what we're reimbursed. Yeah. So here, you know, this kid from Detroit <laughs> with a few tools and a vision can really transform care. Now that said, it takes teamwork. And I've got a wing person, Shannon Crotwell, um, who is a nurse that's worked me, with me from the ICU to outpatient and now our navigator and, you know, my um, co-conspirator in this journey that operationalizes all these crazy visions because of her unique skills. Yeah, no, that's great. And that's fabulous outcomes and a great example how you can leverage technology to improve outcomes, save costs, and you've got the data to prove it. And I, I'm, I, I'm sure that all those that you've touched in your region really appreciate uh, what you're doing. And I hope you have continued ex uh, success with that and sort of leading the way. So that brings me to a question, Kevin, you know, what is it about you? What do you think, you know, made you aware and willing to sort of execute on the promise of digital because, you know, not everyone is there and, you know, what, what sort of differentiates you, if you will, in terms of, you know, that sort of, strategy and, and willing to take some risk? You know, it probably goes to the concept, and you may have read some of this seminal work, Abe Zelensky talked about leaders and HBR, yeah. and I want to say it was back like in maybe 1977, and he quotes William James and talks about 
leaders and managers and sort of the concept of once born or twice born. And he says, once born, you know, they seek equilibrium and they kind of um, lead, let's say, more placid lives. Whereas something has happened in a leader's life or some things have happened that, quite frankly, make them probably more comfortable in that volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous environment and, and also exhibit the courage um, to disrupt equilibrium. Well, I guess I would fit into that latter category as I self-reflect. And when I say that they're all necessary, they're all good, right? Traits, they're all part of what we need to accomplish the things. But I fear, I, I, I clearly fit into that category of disruptor as opposed to uh, find comfort in equilibrium. Yeah, that's really interesting. How... Or can you or should you take the time to help bring others over to that sort of disruptive mentality? Because I'll tell you, because my bias is that we want to accelerate. We know it's proven. You, your, your example of perfect care is, is really good. It's proven that this digital technology can enable all this tremendous success from the quality of care, patient experience, financial. But we move sort of slow as a generality for the entire industry. But there's people like you who are helping accelerate us and we want to multiply individuals like that. So how do you as a clinician, leader, how do you approach other colleagues that may not be that way or, or perhaps different health systems if you were to consult to another health system that was sort of lagging? Like what? how would you help encourage people to take that next step to help with the acceleration? It's complex, it's relentless, it takes courage. You've got to figure out how to optimize the um, alignment of our unique attributes and those skills that we've developed and then use all of those tools in the toolbox at the right time with the right people. And sometimes, as you know, it's facts and numbers and sometimes it's storytelling. It certainly requires uh, relationships and credibility. But at the end of the day, I think you know, it's really the courage to uh, set a vision and then execute on it. And, and an extension of that, that was a little bit troubling to me when a colleague described it, but he was talking about how I was of an age that I shouldn't just be doing things, but that I needed to be mentoring people. And, and while it took me back and made me realize I'm on the back nine of life, um, I think I embraced it. And so what I've really done is through professional society say, I'm there, the Society of Thoracic Surgeons has an organized method where we can mentor younger people. And by just building those relationships and sharing, you help bring them along. I've certainly done that with colleagues, teammates within our organization. And I've even started to do that in the transitioning special operators from the military through the Honor Foundation. And the way to put that all together is right now what I do that in popular words, people would say is servant leadership. It's just tell me how you want me to help you. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And you know, Kevin, your, your example, what's really interesting is for those who don't know you or can see you, like I can see you, uh, you look very young to me, but the fact that you are, as you put it on the back nine, a lot of people would say, Oh, well, you know, the older generation, they don't get it. 
it's really the younger, the digital natives that are sort of leading this wave. But you, in fact, are, are quite the opposite. You are leading the way. You're the one of the leading innovators in this space, people who actually have vision and the ability to execute upon that. And you didn't grow up a digital native. But it sounds like your daughters, you, you use the example of your daughters, and that's certainly been my experience as well. I didn't grow up as a digital native, but my kids sort of uh, helped help me to have a rebirth. Is it something similar for you or, or how would you sort of uh, explain that for yourself? And, and again, the reason I'm asking is for our listeners, you know, who might work with, with individuals who might not be so digitally interested, you know, to help them make that journey across. So what, so what, how did it, how was it for you? You know, what were some key things perhaps? Um. I think fundamentally I'm always scanning for positive deviations, whether it's people, it's processes or technologies. And then I think, how do I incorporate these to try to close the gap again between the way it is and the way it should be. But um, let's be clear. I'm not only looking to my daughters who have taught me as much as anybody in life um, as anybody that I can think of, but look at my father and in, I'll be brief with it. Back when we had the PC revolution, not only was he using those tools, he was building his own computers. And so I don't remember when would that have been, say early 90s. So 30 years ago, he would have been 65. And now he's 95 and he works for Tesla. And the reason, you know, they came to him was they looked for people that had deep experience in the auto industry. He went on after the military to be a mechanical engineer in the auto industry, officially retired of running a uh, engineering component of a publicly traded company at age 92, but they pulled him out of retirement. And here he is embracing, you know, this change to electrical vehicles, um, but bringing, you know, decades of experience. And I look at it the same way. I mean, I'm kind of agnostic in, you know, what I'm aligned with. I just want the best of everything and then to execute on it. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I, we, I, it sounds like we need to have your dad on on, a sh on one of our podcasts. <laughs> I think that would be super, super interesting and appreciate his service to our country as well. I, I have a whole list of questions still to get to, Kevin. Obviously, our time has run short. So let me just ask you one thing and then I'll let you end by adding anything else, Kevin, that might've come up, but what would one piece of advice be for other clinicians who might be listening that are interested in leading? So they you don't have to convince them they get it. And now they want to take that next step into leadership. Here's where that mentoring piece comes in. Right. Um, so what, what would you say to them? What, what would be one piece of advice for someone who, who gets it, gets the technology now wants to become a leader? I'm going to answer that with one answer, but it's really two parts. Surround yourself with the right people, including a coach. Yes. Yes. That's, that's great. Kevin, we covered a lot of ground here, everything from the uh, initiative with perfect care to your military experience and how you became a clinician and all things digital and leadership. So it's been quite fantastic. I have so many other questions. And like I mentioned, unfortunately, we have to end it in the time that it takes to run a 5K. That's how we came up with the length of this podcast. 
So I want to leave you with the last word. Is there something else that perhaps we didn't talk about that you'd like to talk about or reinforce any specific message for our audience? Boy, uh, that's a far reaching question. Um, I would say the important thing that people should think about or the important things would be, as I mentioned, strategies and tactics. So think about doing difficult things in the service of others and then the way you can operationalize that on a daily basis are the tactics of how can you as an individual learn more quickly and what you need to do to continuously improve. So I guess in a sense, it's a mantra and a challenge. Yeah, I love it. This has been fantastic, Kevin. So appreciative of your willingness to spend some time with us and to share your insights and wisdom with our Digital Voices audience. So, be, yeah, thank you for being on our show. Thank you very much. Anytime. Hi, this is John Lynn from the Healthcare IT Today podcast. If you like the latest rumors, insights, and happenings in healthcare IT, you'll enjoy hearing my colleague Colin Hung and myself debate and share the latest happenings from the world of healthcare IT. Find the latest episodes or dig into our archive at healthcareittoday.com or search for Healthcare IT Today on your favorite podcast application or YouTube. When it comes to healthcare technology, we love this stuff, and we can't wait to have you join in on the discussion of everything health IT. Thank you for listening to Digital Voices Podcast with Ed Marks. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on your preferred streaming service and leave a rating and review. And most importantly, thanks again for listening.